<clears throat> this is a Romy cast. Never get tired of being Beatles. Uh, when I play the drums, then I play our guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, what? Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode, a returning guest, still rocking it with the pursuit of happiness and also working as a successful producer, Moberg will be joining us today. Find out what Mo is up to at his website, moberg.ca that is M-O-E-B-E-R-G dot C-A and find out what the pursuit of happiness is up to at their website T-P-O-H dot Net. That is T-P-O-H, standing for the Pursuit of Happiness, dot net. The website for this podcast is romicast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far in this podcast series. This is the fourth episode of Series 3. You can find all of the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2 and Series 3 at the website, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Yes, indeedy. If you are a lover of indie music from the late 80s and early 90s, you will know The Pursuit of Happiness, fronted by guitarist Mo Berg, along with guitarist Chris Abbott, bass player Johnny Sinclair, drummer Dave Gilby, and backup singer Leslie Stanwick. They had a power pop edge, great lyrics, tons of hooks, clever lyrics. I'm an Adult Now was a big hit for the band. Oh yes, I remember it well from my youth. Well, I don't hate my parents. I don't get drunk just to spite them. I got my own reasons to drink now. I think I'll call my dad up and invite him. I can sleep until noon anytime I want. Though there's not many days that I do. Gotta get up and take on that world. When you're an adult, it's no cliche, it's the truth. Mo, great to see you again. Welcome back, and as always, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. 
always great to be here and see you, Paul, and great to talk about the Beatles. Yeah, and, and here we are in uh, the global headquarters of uh, The Walrus Was Paul Productions, uh, otherwise known as my house. So, <laughs> um, so the first time you dug into a Canadian-only Beatles release called Long Tall Sally, uh, and then the last time it was the first McCartney solo record that we talked about. This time, you've circled back to North America-only release, and that was from 1966, Yesterday and Today. Why this record? Well, I guess, I mean, it, uh, the, the, the sort of Canadian, North American releases are the things that I'm most familiar with. Like, I, I wasn't particularly aware that there was like a British version of the Beatles. And I always, and I, you know, in hindsight, I'm very curious about that. Like, it, it was it just kind of like American avarice that, oh, we know better what, you know, how to make these Beatles records work or sell, and you know our comp, you know our versions of them are better, or or if it was just um, uh, if it was just trying to get um, like get the singles onto albums, and maybe that was something that felt better in America than than in, in uh, or America and Canada than in in the states. And it's funny the uh, I t- asked somebody who in 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 the, in, uh, the uh, sort of the record company, um, I said, has there ever been an idea to try and get the Beatles to re-release those Canadian records like like Long Tall Sally and all those records in uh, in Canada? And, and he told me, he said, we, we, we've, tr- we've tried. And, and he said, they're just like, they shut it down. There's like, we do not want that, which I totally understand. They have their idea of how the record should have been. And in, in hindsight, it's very, it's curious to think that there is some people at record companies in Canada, America, who thought they knew better than the Beatles. I mean, it's kind of hilarious to think about it now. Uh, Well, we'll, I'll talk about that a little bit when I give the context of the record. Did anything like that, you know, different time, different band, but uh, in the the pursuit of happiness days when you were trying to break internationally, did you ever run into, well, in in Japan, they want to add this and put a B-side on and drop this or in, you know, the UK or whatever, or did it just, you know, did love junk just go out the same way uh, if I bought it in Toronto as if I bought it in Berlin? Yeah, it, it kind of went out the same way. There was, uh, there, at the time that we, you know, we were current and we were making records, there wasn't a huge singles market or anything like that. You could get like a, a, a CD single. There was, was vinyl singles for, um, for um, love junk and then, but as, as things went along and we went further and further in our career, there, there would be places like, like, like the UK, where they would want a B-side. So do you have anything, that you have a spare track that we can put on a B-side? So those things often were only ever available in, in, in the UK or in Europe. And so there was still an idea of that, but, in, in, but the, the meat of the record was typically always the same. So uh, speaking of Pursuit of Happiness, 2022, pretty good for you. Some touring uh, with the Northern Pikes back in the autumn. And, and before that, some gigs at Lee's Palace in Toronto. What's up for 2023? Right now, nothing. No, <laughs> I mean we have we have some things. We we just we finally uh, have an online store where we're selling some merch and stuff. We're you know we're we we're, we have some, I don't want to. There's some something in discussion right now oh. about doing some possible recording, um, and that's just we're just talking right now. There's not any gigs planned, um, but the recording would probably 
um, make the gig thing sort of uh, happen as well. So it's all in the sort of talking stages right now. Well, let's move on to uh, the Beatles yesterday and today. And uh, let me just put some context around it before we dig into it. And we're going to do things a little out of order here, uh, dear listener. Uh, Usually talk about cover art later in the show but uh, on this occasion uh, for obvious reasons we will talk about the cover art first but context uh, so I've spoken extensively in some other episodes of this podcast about the way that Capital USA butchered pardon the pun uh, the Beatles' early catalog. So they'd withhold a few tracks from albums and then they'd mash them together to make other albums. So between January of 1964 and June of 1966, when Yesterday and Today was released, Capitol had issued 10 Beatles albums. In 1964 alone, they issued five I mean, they were so over the same period of time in the UK, the Beatles had released six albums, uh, so many more released over in North America. The biggest reason no other act had sold as many records or dominated the charts to the extent the Beatles had. And at that time, no doubt, there would have been a feeling of, boys, we got to strike now while this iron is hot because these guys will be history in a year, because that's what happened to a lot of pop bands. So until Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1960, the Beatles albums in North America bore little resemblance to their UK counterparts. Tracks were pulled off the UK albums, slapped together with singles, B-sides, treated with extra reverb, fake stereo, and kind of Frankenstein into other albums. Uh, This did piss the Beatles off to an extent, but there wasn't much, if anything, they could do about it until 1967 when they signed a new recording deal, part of which stipulated that Capital USA would now be obligated to mirror the UK releases of albums. So between 63 and 67, two very different worlds in terms of Beatles albums. You had the US catalog, uh, what is, and then what is now the original, sort of, they call it the core Beatles catalog, which was the original UK catalog. And then just for fun in Canada, it was different still. Prior to June of 64, uh, Capital USA said... That's it. The releases are all going to be the same, but there are a few, one of which you did, Mo, which are uniquely Canadian. Beatlemania with the Beatles, Twist and Shout, which drew largely from Please Please Me, and Long Tall Sally. So it takes yet another turn in Canada. So into 1965. Uh, March of 65, Capitol releases The Early Beatles, a collection of songs from way back in 1963. <laughs> the early days. Uh, they were initially released on the VJ label, so for copyright reasons they wanted to get them on the capitol then on june 14 1965 they released beatles 6 in august of 65 the north american version of the help soundtrack comes out followed by rubber soul less two tracks that were on the uk version in december of 65 so then on june 15th 1966 capital releases yesterday and today it was re-released because of the cover controversy that we'll get into in a moment on june 20th 1966 so five days later it was the last of the capital frankenstein albums as the title would suggest the theme was built around some of the beatles older tunes i'm using air quotes folks uh and some of the newer music of today from the beatles catalog in fact three of the tracks it was built around came off of the yet-to-be-released Revolver album. So you got it in North America before they got it in the UK. In the end, the album has 11 tracks, three from Revolver, uh, which, as I said, wasn't to be released 
for another couple of months coming out in August of 66. Two tracks from the UK Help album, four tracks from the UK version of Rubber Soul, and both sides of the first double A-side single, Day Tripper, backed with We Can Work It Out. Album comes into the Billboard LP chart on July 9th, 1966 at 120. It hits number one in the chart on July 30th, stays there for five weeks before it started to fall down the charts, mainly because people started buying Revolver, which had just come out. Uh, Over two million copies were sold in the U.S. during its initial release in Canada on the Chum Album Index. It entered at number five, then hit number one and stayed in the top spot for seven weeks. As per chartmasters.org, which is uh, the source I use, yesterday and today has physical sales of over 2.4 million copies, which places it fourth in physical sales of the Beatles' North American-only releases ahead of something new and behind the Beatles' second album. What say you to all of that? Well, yeah, that's all very interesting. And um, yeah, thinking about it now, and and especially uh, I sort of understand why this record would not would have be a pointless reissue at this point because so much of it is from Rubber Soul and Revolver. So what would be really the point? And especially since there's so many Beatles compilations at this point, that this record is kind of a redundant record. But I'm with you because this, you know, like you, we're about the same age, and this might have been the first Beatles album that I that I listened to on my buddy's older brother's stereo. Uh, I remember the cover, and I remember liking the songs, and uh, so it does hold a, regardless of what it was or what it is, it does hold kind of a special place. Place, right? Right. Well, that's the reason why I chose it. It's like I, I, all the records that I've done on the show sort of have this sort of like uh, feeling of nostalgia or, uh, you know, they, they are personal to me in a certain kind of way. And so they were, this, this record was, was and, and Long Tall Sally were more personal to me than a lot of the so-called official releases were. Okay, so let's talk about the cover. Uh, usually I wait till the end of the episode. Oh, here, here's what the cover was, even though Beatles covers are, are kind of cool. Uh, the, to North Americans of a certain age, maybe a little bit older than us even, uh, but the Butcher cover, which was on the original issue of yesterday and today is what the album's kind of famous for uh so the controversial cover photo was from a photo session the beatles had done on march 25th 1966 with photographer bob whitaker uh just for some context he also shot the photos for the cover of the beatles 65 north american album and the back cover photo on revolver where they're all kind of in the glasses sitting in studio too uh, he was a favorite of the beatles uh, whitaker's memories are thus The whole thing was quite literally going to be based on the theme of yesterday and today with the overall title of a, I want to say this correctly, sonumbulant adventure, a sonumbulant adventure. The past, birth, and present, everyday life, would be mixed with mortality, death. So what the image was, folks, if you haven't seen it, and I'll post a link on the show links, it is the Beatles in butcher smocks uh, holding up dolls, doll parts, you know, headless dolls and heads of dolls with some meat uh, also, you know, sitting on their laps and, and as props. And, and I, th- I, th- I don't think they have knives. I think it's just they're, they're holding. So it is what it is. It's a, it, and it 
flew like the proverbial lead balloon in the United States. Uh, radio stations, ref- record stores refused to stock it. Uh, it had to be recalled and quickly reissued with this pasted over standard, you know, pretty mundane cover shot of them, you know, Paul McCartney sitting in a packing trunk and they're all standing around looking disinterested. Do you remember it at all? I, you know, I never, I wasn't aware of the butcher cover until much later. Me too. And then I, I found out about it later and and I, and then it became like a curiosity and I knew it was a collector's item and also found it really interesting that they, if I'm, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they actually um, took a lot of the actual records that they had and they, they literally pasted the new record jacket on top of it. So there is a lot of people I heard that would try to steam that off so that they would be able to have the butcher cover themselves. And I don't know how effective that was. Most of them got pulped, um, but there were there were a few, a few thousand that did that they did a paste over, and that's exactly it. People would you know would get the kettle and try to steam the paste over off, and it would be very valuable. Uh, original butcher covers are worth a lot of money if if you ever see a genuine one. There are a lot of fake ones out there as well. Now, what here's here's my take, and then I'd be curious. In hindsight, to me, it was a cultural thing. Like Americans much more, even now, much more puritanical about things like that than British people. So like even the infamous Maureen Cleave, John Lennon interview, you know, the, the, the uh, bigger than Jesus, right? It, that, that ran in the papers in Britain and people didn't bat an eyelash. It was, uh, you know, John Lennon popping off about religion, whatever. And of course it got to the United States and there were record burnings and, and uh, the, the Klan was involved in all kinds of ridiculous stuff. Um, I think British people would have seen this because the photos had already run in record trade magazines. They run in the record mirror uh, and in the New Musical Express. And again, nobody batted an eyelash. It was just, it, it was almost sort of a, at that time, Salvador Dali was big and it was almost a sort of a piss take of that kind of surrealist art. Right. Americans didn't see it that way. That's my take. And what do you think? I think America is a, a is an interesting country of contradictions. Um, the I always think of this as an example. Like um, I remember when that rec, that movie Predaporte. I think how you say Predaporte came, and so it came out, and then. In America, it had, they had to have a subtitle of "Ready to Wear," and 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 it was, struck me as hilarious. It's like it's like we think we're way better than everybody else, but we also realize that we're kind of stupider than everybody else. <laughs> and how and they, so, there's always this idea of trying to sort of juxtapose those two things. And so when you think about America, you think you know it's very easy from people outside to look at it as like this cesspool of like, you know, no, there's nowhere in the world where pornography is bigger or, you know, organized crime is bigger and, you know, all these sort of like, all these sort of really, ab- not, I wouldn't say aberrant, like sort of like contextually, let's call it this, sinful behavior is, is, America is almost like the king of all that, yet they have this wild Puritan streak where, you know, Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity is like, is deep rooted. So there's sort of like a line that it seems like you can't cross in America. And so I think the the idea of like, we're bigger than Jesus, even if you, there's no one's going to be able to take that in proper context in America. They're just going to see that in the most negative possible way. Yeah. And so it's the same as this. It's just like, it's almost like you, you find a line and, and, and if you cross that in America, you're fine. And if you're above that, you can do all kinds of outrageous and, and 
terrible and you know disgusting kinds of things. Yeah, and a big philosophical discussion here we're having it, but I think it apl- I think that's essentially what happened with the cover. Uh, again, again, according to my research, what I could turn up, John Lennon, not surprisingly, was the most into it. He thought it was really cool, you know. Even even then, sort of expressing a you know a bit of a uh, a desire to kind of get out there, push the boundaries, as he did you know later in his career, um, and. They had actually already submitted a cover, and here's where, if you want to do your sleuthing, so there's a photo of Brian Epstein, who's at a video shoot that was taking place for Day Tripper Paperback Writer at Chiswick House in West London. Um, Author's note, I used to live right by there. So it's a picture of Epstein looking at a mock-up of the cover, and it is the cover that we see before us sitting on the table here today. So it's the cover that we're all used to. What this author speculated happened is that, so the album hadn't come out yet, is that the Beatles would have seen that mock-up and that John Lennon and the rest of the band said, no, that's not going to be the cover. The cover is going to be these shots that Bob Whitaker took that we love. And the switch was made. That's that's the speculate. That's what I would speculate. So, in the end, I guess just uh, speaks to the times, right? Uh, and a lot of it is that too. And you think about where like heavy metal is in America now, and or or hip hop or anything. <laughs> oh, you know. Well, think of yeah. think of some of your most offensive album covers. Yeah, like over the years, right. and this is like all right, a bunch of guys in butcher smocks. I mean, right. yeah. small time stuff. Sure, yeah, it's, def- <laughs> it's definitely the times. It yeah, to do and, and the, but you know, again, in nineteen. 19- 66 your basic album cover was uh, you know the band in suits smiling for the camera so sure, of course so, yeah. all right so uh appreciate your thoughts on that i just thought we'd talk about the cover because it's it's so infamous let's get to the and talk about the music the fun stuff uh we uh, take it out of the sleeve put it on our virtual turntable and it is side one cut one originally the opening track on 1965's rubber soul drive my car This is like a real quintessential Paul song. Like it's uh, his vocal; it, it sounds very Paulish. Like he's kind of singing near the top of his range. Um, it's um, and it, it's it's got a great killer riff to it, great bass line, and um, and then it, and then it has the the really amazing harmonies. And it's funny. I I was. Um, I listen sometimes to this other Beatles podcast called Something About the Beatles. You may be familiar with it. Um, and and I was listening to one episode of it, and they had um, they because they, ta- they had done an interview with Marshall Crenshaw, who's a I'm a huge fan of Marshall Crenshaw. And so they so they were talking to him in context of the Beatles, and he he was one of the stars. He, he'd been in the stage production of the Beatlemania. He played John Lennon, and uh, and he was also you know obviously very influenced by them. And and then so afterwards, after they finished the interview with Marshall, they start talking about, you know, power pop because Marshall Crenshaw is considered a power pop artist, and that the Beatles are, you know, 
were typically the, in, the, the, the group that basically created that style of music. And so the, most of the bands who are so-called power pop bands would say that it all originated with the Beatles. And so they were, so, so the, the two hosts of the show are trying to uh, sort of figure out what, what you know, how, how would you describe the Beatles music? Like how, what, what, what would you say? And what, what, and what does, what, and how does that relate to what, what is the definition of power pop? And, and one of the guys, I'm not sure if it was Richard, the other guy said, you know, you know, they're like a vocal group. And it's like, that's kind of what they were. They were like a vocal group because all their songs had these really beautiful harmonies. It wasn't, it's, and, and it's, it would be very difficult in the sort of, especially in the first two thirds of the Beatles career to find a song where only one person is singing. And there's a song on this record where that happens, but that's a super rare thing. And so, and it seemed like the harmonies got more complex as their, their composition became more complex. So when you think about, you know, um, this song, you know, in the verse, it's, it's Paul singing and John singing along, sort of like a, a, a regular sort of harmony that you might hear. And then when they get to, you know, they, they turn around into the chorus, like, you know, but I can show you a better time. It's, it turns into this really angular chord that they're all singing as a three-part harmony. And then obviously the beautiful three-part harmonies in the chorus. And so it really, to me, that sounds like the Beatles. Like if I said, what do the Beatles sounds like? I sound like I could play this song for someone and say, this is what the Beatles sound like. It's got these beautiful harmonies. It's got a kind of a funky kind of baseline vibe based on their, you know, love of R&B and that they played R&B songs for their entire early career. And so it really does sound a lot like what I think the Beatles sound like. And it sounds a lot like what I think of Paul McCartney. When I think of this song, I think of Paul McCartney playing it at the Super Bowl. You know, and yeah. that's the image that always comes to mind. Uh, the lyrics were disastrous and I knew it, recalls Paul McCartney. This is one of the songs where John and I came nearest to having a dry session. The lyrics I brought in were something to do with golden rings, which is always fatal. Rings is fatal anyway, because rings always rhymes with things. And I knew that it was a bad idea. So I came in and I said, these aren't good lyrics, but it's a good tune. The tune was nice. The tune was there. I'd done the melody. Well, we tried and John couldn't think of anything and we tried and eventually it was, okay, let's leave it. Let's get off this one. No, no, we can do it. We can do it. So we had a break, maybe had a cigarette or a cup of tea. Then we came back to it and somehow it became drive my car instead of golden rings. And then it was wonderful because this nice tongue in cheek idea came and suddenly there was a girl there, the heroine of the story, and the story developed and had a little sting in the tail like Norwegian Wood had, which I... I was actually haven't got a car, but when I get one, you'll be a terrific chauffeur. That is Paul McCartney's recollection. Uh, also, he does say, uh, "Drive my car" was an old blues euphemism for sex. So, and in the end, it's all revealed. Oh, okay, right. Interesting. Um, the arrangement you talked about, Mo, suggested by George Harrison, who'd been listening to Otis Redding's "Respect," then a minor hit. Harrison suggested that the bass and guitar parts should play similar lines in an approximation of Redding's bass-heavy sound, resulting in one of the Beatles' most effective performances of 1965. Uh, and then Harrison says, I helped out such a lot in all the arrangements. There was a lot of tracks where I played bass. Paul played lead guitar on Taxman, and he played guitar, a good part. Uh, so Harrison helped out a lot on that, which... Which leads me to 
Something I don't understand. I mean, you're a professional musician, a producer. Maybe you can explain it to me. This has always been a weird one for me. A guy helps out with the arrangement or a key component of the song and doesn't get a songwriting credit. So Harrison also helped a lot with the arrangement for She Says, She Says. No credit. What's the code? We, <laughs> there's a, we talk about codes in sports and, and what is the, the musician's code for, you know, you and I are in and uh, you brought me in as I'm in the band with you and you bring in an almost complete song and I say, yeah, but what about if we added this bass part? Uh, do I get a writing credit? No. Okay. So, so how it works, and, and you know, and I'm not the official word on this by any means, um, but I mean, think about it this way: when uh, when you think about the jazz era, for example, so you'd you'd have a jazz combo, maybe you were maybe it was a, a trio or a four piece, or maybe you had a jazz orchestra like Glenn Miller or something like that, and you would take a song like "I've Got Rhythm" or "My Funny Valentine" or something like that, and what you would do is you would do your own arrangement of that song. And it would be an arrangement that would be specific to you. And so that made, you know, so there, there's, you know, if you went snooping around, you could find two or three or 400 versions of I've Got Rhythm or My Funny Valentine or any of these standards. And a lot of them sound very, very different from each other, like completely different, which is to say, you know, the, the, all the different parts that the musicians played were all sort of unique to that particular version. But nobody, even though I wrote a, I'm say I'm arranging my funny Valentine and I wrote a, you know, completely different bass part for it or, you know, my soloist plays this, you know, John Coltrane plays a eight minute sax solo in it. It's none of that is songwriting. It's just part of the arrangement of the song. And so I can't, I can't go and take a song like Smells Like Teen Spirit and do my own version of it and do it really weird and you know, change some chords and maybe even change a couple of the lyrics. And I can't say written by Kurt Cobain and Mo Berg. There's, you know, <laughs> Kurt Cobain's <laughs> estate would be on me. Like, you know, yeah. like, you know, so, um, so that's the idea here is like arranging isn't writing. It's, it's this, there's a, the, there's a song and there's the, um, that's, that's the, the, there's a creation of the song, but this, the, but the, the, what everybody plays on it is not, uh, that's not part of the song. Or any, and, you know, this is very evident when you think about like all the songs that were recorded in say at Motown. So, you know, a, the song where some like Holland Dozier Holland would have a song and they'd bring in, you know, was the Supremes or whoever would be singing it on the, the song. And they go in this session and, uh, and there'd be a bunch of session musicians and say, well, here's the song. Some might play it on the piano and everybody would come up with their part. And so when you think about a song like My Girl, like when I think of the song My Girl, the first thing I think of is the guitar hook, the do, 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 do. The guitar player came up with that hook that was on the session. He probably made $60. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That record made millions and millions and millions of dollars for everybody else. He probably made 60 bucks on the section. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of how that goes. Cool. Uh, so let's go on, uh, but get back to yesterday and today and on to track two on side one. Uh, it was cut one on Rubber Soul, Drive My Car. And now we go to what was originally the third song on 1966's Revolver, I'm Only Sleeping. I like this song. 
And I, I, one of the things I thought was interesting was listening to the evolution of the song. I, I listened to the the new Revolver reissue, and so the the song when it it had vibes at the beginning, like when they first started doing it, there was vibes. interesting idea for this song because when you hear the final version of the song it's a uh, um it's 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 just it's a real stripped down bass drums guitar kind of acoustic guitar there's not much to it the harmonies and the only real production trick is the backwards guitar and so this was becoming a big thing with the beatles you know trying to sort of recreate the psychedelic experience and in terms of like pushing the boundaries of recording techniques and trying to make this idea happen. And, you know, the Beatles are largely credited with inventing psychedelic rock. Um, and so this was sort of that, the beginnings of that. And certainly Revolver was the beginnings of all of that. And, uh, but, but yeah, it's funny to see how, what a different, if they, if they said, well, this is the day we're put, cutting this, the record's coming out in two days, we got to do it. That would be a wildly different song, being a vibes-driven song. And then someone along the line thinking, well, no, the vibes isn't right. Let's just... Let's just hammer it out and play acoustic guitar and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's it's a real stripped down bass, drums, and guitar kind of track with this backwards guitar being the only sort of real significant production idea here. Written uh, primarily by John Lennon. And uh, you're right. I, I, I wish they'd left the vibes on. It's almost like a little prequel. Right. It would have been sort of cool, kind of like the prequel to uh, Here, There, and Everywhere, right. uh, the way they have that. Uh, the two production two production tricks, the, the, the unique sound of the reverse guitar uh, played by Harrison, uh, and the engineer was Jeff Emmerich, and he recalled in 2006, Six. Let me see. What does he say here on my notes? Uh, the meticulous. Uh, he says it was an interminable day, lasting nine hours. I can still picture George hunched over his guitar for hours on end, headphones clamped on, brows furrowed in concentration, playing the solo backwards. Right. Uh, and then the other effect: they recorded a basic rhythm track. Uh, on fast tape and then played it back at normal speed, which gives you that sludgy, dreamy sound a la Rain was where they first had done that. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I love this song. Yeah, it's great. I, I really like it. And the backwards thing, according to Paul McCartney, uh, Paul not always the, the best recaller of his own history, but uh, we'll go with him here. Um, it, it, it was just one of those happenstance things. He said uh, it played backwards because a tape operator accidentally threaded a tape onto the machine the wrong way. We heard it and said, what the hell is going on? Those effects, nobody knew how those sounded then. And we said, God, that's fantastic. Can we do that for real? So that was what we did. And that was where we discovered backwards guitar. It was a beautiful solo, actually. It sounds like something you couldn't play. (laughs) 
it's funny to think of that, George uh, being sort of agonizing over that, because one of the great things about uh, like flipping the tape and having something go backwards is just like, it's almost anything you play sounds cool. <laughs> so the idea that he had it in his mind that he wanted it to sound a certain way is kind of part of what made the Beatles so great is that they, those sort of details. But I mean, a lot of times you could just play anything and you flip it over and it's like, oh, it sounds pretty cool to me. And then you maybe didn't even play anything that great. Maybe you've done this already, but it's just, just jumping into my mind. Like, would you ever consider like a, uh, you know, an album, uh, Moberg Freaks Out or something like that? There's a tell you can use that. I don't want a session <laughs> fee. And you just do all kinds of, because you're a pretty seasoned studio producer at this point in your life. And you just, just, you almost do it out of character of Mo Berg and there's backwards guitars and samples and loops and all kinds of weird stuff that maybe you'd like to do but have never done? Or have you done something like that? Well, no, I mean, every once in a while, you'll do some fun thing in the studio, like a, a, a specific kind of recording technique or something that, you know, gives a record a certain kind of intangible quality to it. And that's really fun. But it's it's not really, that's never really been my thing, even as a fan. I'm, I'm, just, I'm really more of a song guy and I like to hear harmonies. And I, 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 you know, I'm more about that than I am about like, pushing the boundaries of the studio that's and typically you know I'm always in these situations where I'm, I'm my budget is so low when what I'm doing is like I'm just trying to get the thing finished rather than like spend hours like you know George Harrison yeah. hunched over a guitar for eight or nine hours that's just something that doesn't really happen in my sessions <laughs> you'd imagine doing something with the James Clark Institute saying I got we're gonna spend nine hours in the guitar solo yeah yeah that's not no. it, just, it just couldn't happen yeah. all right let's go to the next track uh, and uh, track three on this album, originally the fourth track on Rubber Soul, uh, another John Lennon song, Nowhere Man. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. This is a song I've always loved. It's I loved it when I first heard it, and I still love it now. It's a it's a great song, a very interesting song, and again, it really shows off the Beatles' vocal abilities. It's it's you know all the harmonies. The whole song is 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 uh, this three part harmony all through the entire melody, which is a relatively difficult thing to pull off. And then when you get to the B section, that's when. Uh, uh, John is singing by himself, but in behind it is still that beautiful ooh la la la, which is amazing. And so this song is really when I was a kid and I loved harmonies and I loved the Beach Boys. This would this song was just completely right up my alley. It was just something I really loved. One thing I have to say, and this would be something that you would ne almost never hear from me. I really don't like Paul's bass playing on this track. It's like I find it overly busy. And I find it distracting. I find it kind of distracts. And I probably, is a probably a thing I didn't notice that much when I was a kid. I probably wasn't, but when I listen to it now, it's just like, I, I, especially I was kind of listening to this stuff, you know, before I came on the show and I was, and I was, and I had my earbuds on and I was on the treadmill and I was like, wow, that bass, I, I, I just, all I could think about was the bass. I, I was it was distracting me from listening to the song. It's like, I, I, I really, um, and I'm wondering why. And I, when I listen to almost everything on this record, Paul's playing is very busy. Like he's playing these very sort of uh, lots of notes on, on every song. 
And I'm wondering if this was during a period, if I'm not mistaken, where there was a lot of John stuff going on. John seemed to be very dominating in the band in terms of like what songs got to be singles or having, there seems to be a lot of, on this particular record, there's a lot of John songs on here. And I know this record was not designed by the Beatles, but, and I'm almost wondering if this was a period of time where Paul was like trying to like find his place. Like, what can I do on this song that would, you know, make so that I get a little bit of attention or I can, I feel like I put something into this song. And maybe if I put this, you know, big, complicated bass line in it, then that's kind of my contribution to this. And so I find that with a lot of these songs. But in this particular song, I feel like it's very distracting. I just, I, yeah, I wish it was a tiny bit simpler. You would have noticed, uh, listening on your earbuds for sure, the very high and clear treble on the guitar solo. Uh, so here's what Paul McCartney recalls. I remember we wanted very trebly guitars, which they are. They're among the most trebly guitars I've ever heard on record. The engineer said, all right, I'll put full treble on it. And we said, that's not enough. And he said, but that's all I've got. I've only got one pot and that's it. And we replied, well, put that through another lot of faders and put full treble up on that. And if that's not good enough, we'll go through another lot of faders. You get the idea. Anyway, you'd then find, oh, it worked. And they were secretly glad because they'd been the engineer who'd put the the three times and the allowed value of treble on a song. And they were quietly proud of all those things, he thinks, when they did that. So that's how they got that. Some question as to whether or not the guitar solo is Lennon and Harrison playing the same solo or Harrison double tracked and then bounced down to a single track. Uh, so speaking of guitar solos, let's talk guitar solos. I'm, I'm talking with a guy who's done many great guitar solos. Uh, I love the one and she's so young. That might be my favorite. I, that is a great, great solo. 10 fingers is a great solo, uh, for what it's worth. I think, I think it's really good. You had a great quote that I read. Uh, I love this. In the end, playing a solo is like your first conversation with a girl. If you're not interesting in the first 30 seconds, you're likely to get tuned out. Uh, give me a little bit more on that thought. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I when I was a kid, I listened to a lot of guitar players, and I listened to a lot of guitar players. I mean, guitar players in you know the late '60s, early '70s, when I was like a little kid, they, a lot of this stuff was very blues based. Um, and then I started listening to, when, as I listened to guitar, as I got older, and I started actually playing the guitar, was. Um, a lot of the people that I listened to had this sort of more melodic um, sense of playing. So, you know, at a certain point, the blues scale is the blues scale and it's been done a million times and it's not that interesting. And so, so I, a lot, uh, probably two of my biggest influences for guitar solos would probably be like Jeff Beck and, and uh, Todd Rundgren. And so the, what their guitar solos were always very lyrical and very sort of musical and they weren't just like scales, they were often playing little melodies. And so that became sort of like my thing. I, I, I never felt like I was like a very technical, like I can't play like a lot of the sort of technical things that a lot of other lead players can play super fast or these really complex scales. But I was always able to sort of find an interesting melody, a, a note that would go with the chord as the chord changes. And a lot of the things in my songs, a lot of my songs uh, depend on sort of like these more sort of um, 
evocative chords. And that's sort of been sort of part of the pursuit of happiness trademark sound is these sort of evocative chords. And so tailoring my solos to those chords was a lot of how I ended up writing the solos. And so a lot of the solos that you hear on our records were composed. It wasn't I went in the studio and just kind of started playing something and hoped that it worked out. They were typically, I okay, I wrote the solo and I kind of have an idea what I want it to sound like. And, it, and often it wasn't blues-based. It was often trying to find something that worked with the chords of the song. So for somebody who doesn't understand the recording process, which most of us don't, uh, so let's let's jump on, uh, as I've said many times, I love the single for She's So Young. I just, I, I just think it's so good. It's got so much energy and it just sustains for the whole solo and you just, you love it, right? You, you cannot not play air guitar. You probably don't play air guitar to it because you played it. I play air guitar to it. <laughs> Even though that record was largely recorded pretty much live off the floor, uh, the uh, Love Junk, and that was the way Todd liked to record, Todd Rundgren, the producer, um, we overdubbed all the solos. So all the solos were overdubbed, and that gave, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it gave um, Todd a little bit more control over the sound of the actual guitar sound, and uh, so it wasn't just the same sound that you were playing uh, as on your rhythm guitar. So that was largely it, and also just to make sure that uh, Todd had a very... Um, uh, I was trying to think of a nice way of saying this, but he thought I was a terrible guitar player. <laughs> and so, um, and so he, I think he wanted to make sure that, you know, we were in the room together and, and I didn't play some horrible thing. Like, and so, and him saying that to me actually was extremely helpful because it really did make me realize I can't just play a bunch of goofy stuff. I have to play, I have to think this out and I have to play something interesting or he's not going to, He's not going to let it go by. Yeah, I know. I get that. I get in my mind, of course. You know, I, I picture you in the studio playing that solo, and like the band around, like just right. you know, getting into it, urging you on. And maybe they're doing that from behind the control room glass. I don't know. Uh, but it's a, it, is that is that your favorite solo? Um, of yours? Of mine? Oh gosh, I'm trying to think. There's been, there's been a few. Yeah. I mean, it's, I like it because it's, I, another thing, I had this other uh, guitar player that I used to admire, his name is Ronnie Montrose, and he, he was a solo artist, but he also played um, with um, some other groups, uh, most notably um, Edgar Winter Group. And he used to always say this, he said, you should, when you play a guitar solo, you should, someone should be able to sing it. So if someone wanted to sing your guitar solo, they should be able to do that. And so I think that was, that's what I think about this guitar solo for She's So Young, it's like that. It's like a, it's a melody. And so uh, often, I often think of the guitar solo being a sort of like replacing the vocal melody. And so your ear goes from the vocal melody to the guitar solo. And so I thought, well, in this song, I'll just create another melody. And I, I think that's maybe why, maybe why you like it or maybe why I think of it. Yeah, no, it's a great one. Uh, so your great solo, uh, the great solo and uh, the Beatles have done that we just talked about. So we'll go on to the next track on Yesterday and Today. Uh, and it was originally the fourth cut on side two of Revolver, Dr. Robert, another primarily John Lennon song. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, this is a, a cool song that really, I think of this as sort of, again, like a real mid-period Beatles song where they were starting to sound different than their early days where this was the, the just the whole vibe of this. And in some ways it does sound like, when I think of the guitar riff, that that's kind of, I got every reason on earth to be mad. It sounds like a lot of their early influences. Yeah. But, um, but at the same time, it really shows how innovative they were. Like the B section of the song with that well, well, well thing. That's just so cool sounding. And the, the fact that it the drops down in, uh, in dynamics, like all of a sudden gets really quiet there and the groove goes away and then they get into this well, well, and I, I'm always like, I, I'm, and I probably should be research this more, but like, like I'm always wondering, like, to the, like, how much of the Beatles' vocal arrangements were were George Martin, and how much of it was their own? I think a lot of it was their own, but I, I've also, you know, heard stories of George Martin sitting at the piano with them, and I think because was it would be an example of that, where he sat down at the piano and he sort of said, "Here's what you're singing, here's what you're singing, here's what you're singing," and because that's such a complex song. Um, and so when I hear that, well, 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 I think, did the Beatles, were they just sitting around, like we, we see them and get back and they were just like, started singing that and someone started singing along, because like that's it's pretty magical. Oh, we could, <laughs> many podcasts have been done, uh, but uh, yeah, you could do, we could sit here and spend another couple of hours talking about the, the Get Back movie. Just, right, you, right. I mean, that scene where you see McCartney essentially giving birth to Get Back. Right. You know, the look on Harrison and Starr's faces, they look, they're kind of disinterested. And then all of a sudden you can see it in their, where, yeah. hey, this sounds like something. And immediately Harrison starts right. trying to help with, it's, it's incredible. I mean, as a, for, as a professional musician and producer like yourself, like to watch that must have just been. Oh, it blew my mind. Yeah, God. So How many times have you watched it? I've only watched it once. Um, I, well, it's funny because I watched the whole thing, but before that I had watched uh, um, um Universal had put a, had uh, had a showing at the Lightbox Theater of a, of a an hour and a half cut of the whole thing that was hosted by um by uh, Peter Jackson not there but he he sort of narrated it and so I saw that originally which was fantastic because it basically was just took all the best kind of little best little sick um, vignettes and then ha- had the whole concert so that was really great and then I then I went through and watched. Yeah, the whole thing. It, 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 was, it was fantastic. I've, well, yeah, I've watched it a couple of times, and then you go back and you watch little sections. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it is. It is. It's really funny. Cool. I, I talking to my friend Stephen Page, who you also know. He's and they, talking about how they, they called it from what it was at sixty hours. And he said, and he, he said, I'd watch the whole sixty hours. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and everybody. Hey, tell Stephen he's got to come back on. I'm trying to go through his people. It's uh, it's it's frustrating. Uh, so, but back to Dr. Robert. So, in a '67 interview, McCartney describes the meaning of the song as there's some fellow in New York and in the States we'd hear people say you can get everything off him any pills you want it was a big racket but a joke too about this fellow who cured everyone of everything with all these pills and tranquilizers injections for this and for that he just kept New York high that's what Dr. Robert is all about just a pill doctor who sees you all right Uh, and then in the 1997 biography many years from now uh, Barry Miles identified Dr. Robert uh, for you trivialists as a guy named uh, Robert Fryman, a New York doctor known for dispensing vitamin B12 shots laced with amphetamines to wealthy clientele. So Mo, next time you're in New York, feeling down, (laughs) call Dr. Robert. uh, Production thing, Lennon's vocal recorded in ADT, that is uh, automatic 
tape delay or ATD or uh, split across the stereo spectrum and it's matched by McCartney's harmony in fourths which would mean more to you than me and by Harrison's double track guitar with its unique blend of sitar and country and western and that is Ian McDonald's observation in revolution in the head so we go from uh, a real run of John Lennon tracks into one that could not be more quintessentially Paul McCartney yesterday Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly Well, it's kind of hard to find anything that hasn't been said about this song already. I mean, it's I mean, it's clearly one of the greatest songs that's ever been written and recorded. Um, in my mind, for sure, um, in a in a band that has a, a gigantic catalog of classics, this is a, a a classic that sticks out from a from a catalog of classics, which is kind of monumental. Um, it's just such a beautiful song, and it has such a beautiful, poignant lyric. Like it's so relatable, um, you know. And and this brings me to the whole like compositionally, it's just absolutely perfect. It's just a perfect song. Like, so I'm just gonna grab this for a second. Okay, this is my out of tune. Oh, it's my, sorry. sorry, no worry. It's my out of tune guitar, folks. But I when I just just the first part of it, and this, I think, sorry, I'm probably off mic right now. When I think about uh, about Paul McCartney, uh, who he listened to, like he would, he would, I, you know, I, I've heard he listened to like Cole Porter and people like that. So that's why he's when he, so the first chord is like it's like yesterday, and then. And then the the chord that we go to would be is D minor, but when he does it, so it's a it, it's it's F and and to the A. So passing through those two chords is what makes him Paul McCartney. Because another song I wish to go on yesterday, yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. But going yesterday, all my troubles seem so. It's just so 150 times better than that. And so that's kind of why he's who he is. So compositionally, it's just so great. And then I, I guess the, the idea for the strings was not his, if I understand that correctly, and it was George Martin. And what's great about the strings on this is they do not, they, they, they in no way ever uh, distract from the vocal ever. Most of the time, they're just sort of playing these pads. They're just playing the chords of the song. And so they're just kind of... Uh, they're like an accompaniment to the guitar more than they are sort of like... Uh, uh, sort of a counter melody to the vocal. So the vocal just gets to live by itself and the strings are just kind of supporting the vocal. And this is a, a, a an idea of like uh, musicals. In, in musicals, when the singer is singing, the singer is acting. And so the words that the singer is singing are important in that they are like dialogue in the movie. So when you think about like a Disney movie or something and you think about, you know, part of your world from the movie, The Little Mermaid. You listen to the vocal and the, you listen to the orchestra and the orchestra is always just supporting the vocal. It's never getting in the way of the vocal. And that's how I hear the string arrangement. It's just like, it's just there to sort of support the vocal and also to create uh, uh, empathy and, and sort of uh, make it feel more sad than, than it would otherwise. And and so just in terms of like uh, the, the melody and the chords, like it's so 
uh, unique and also complex in a way that isn't uh, confusing or anything like that. And again, it it brings me to the idea, and I know I'm like the world's greatest Paul supporter, but that Paul always seems to get a short shift in in terms of like, who's the better songwriter? Who is the more important songwriter? Uh, And and it's in the the moment that's the, 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 the argument that's the most uh, irritating to me is the Penny Lane "Strawberry Fields Forever" thing, where where that was the the single, and 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 people were just like, "Strawberry Fields Forever" is this classic, and Penny Lane was this piece of fluff that was on the other side. And when you listen to Penny Lane, Penny Lane is every bit as complex oh, compositionally yes, yes. as, and it's also a, a very uh, complex in terms of its arrangement and, and very iconic. Like the trumpet part is one of the, like, like uh, how many times in my life have I said, I had a trumpet player and it's like, think about Penny Lane while you're playing this, you know, and think of that. And then, and then they play it and it's like, that's exactly what I want, you know? And so uh, it that kind of bugs me. I, and, 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 and it's, it, and I know that Strawberry Fields Forever is an amazing song. And a lot of what, but I'll, this is the, this is the thing. A lot of what makes Strawberry Fields Forever amazing song is the production, and because it has this amazing production and also the amazing story of how it was put together and 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 on all the labor that went into it, and I think that overshadows the fact that it's yeah, it's a good song if you played it on acoustic guitar and sang, it's fine. And the lyrics are fine. They're not the greatest lyrics John Lennon ever wrote. They're good, they're fine. But when I think about the lyrics for like Penny Lane, the Penny Lane is like this cinematic adventure. Like we're, we're watching it the whole time. We're listening to it. We're in our mind, we're watching this movie of all the things that he's talking about, you know, the barber shop, everything that's going on. So it's like, to me, Penny Lane is every bit as good compositionally as, as Strawberry Fields Forever. And I think, you know, clearly the years, as years went by, people started to realize that Paul McCartney was and as just as amazing songwriter as John Lennon was. Um, now, famous story, of course, if you haven't heard it, dear listener, I'm assuming if you listen to this podcast, you probably know it, but uh, the melody came to McCartney fully formed. Uh, he he heard it in a dream while staying at the family home of Jane Asher, his then girlfriend. McCartney's quote, I was living in a little flat at the top of the house and I had a piano by my bed. I woke up one morning with a tune in my head and I thought, hey, I don't know this tune, or do I? It was like a jazz melody. Now, my dad used to know a lot of old jazz tunes. I thought maybe I just remembered it from the past. I went to the piano, found the chords to do it, made sure I remembered it, and then hawked it around to all my friends asking what it was. Do you know this? It's a good little tune, but I couldn't have written it because I dreamt it. And that was, of course, yesterday. Um, The band did have a go at it. Uh, what is it? Says? There was a, an unrecorded arrangement with Lennon on Hammond organ. Uh, and then George Martin suggested to McCartney that they use a string quartet, which was a first for the Beatles. McCartney was initially skeptical and insisted the musicians perform without vibrato. Uh, McCartney and Martin worked on the score together with the majority of it written by George Martin. And the famous quote from George Martin is, we can try it. If you don't like it, we won't use it. And of course, we know how that turned out. Uh, So we've talked about the musical arrangement, some eloquent points made by you. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the other thing with the song. In his book, The Lyrics, McCartney makes a terrific point about the song. A recording doesn't change, he says, but of course we continue to age and grow. And as you get older, your relationship to a song can grow too. When I wrote yesterday, 
I just moved to London from Liverpool and I was starting to see the whole new world of possibilities open up before me. But all my yesterdays covered a pretty small period at that point. Now the song seems even more significant. Yes, more poignant because of the time that has passed since I wrote it. There have been more yesterdays. Do you relate differently to your songs as you grow older? Yeah, so this is something that gets asked, especially now. A lot of people, when they, you know, when I think about, especially like our first record, Love Junk, and our first two records more than than the others, when I think of my state of mind and where I was as a person, I was such a different person back then than I am now. But when I think about, about I'm an adult now, or she's so young, just those kinds of songs. I think they are almost like more meaningful to me now in the same way that you're saying that Paul said about about yesterday. It's like both those songs were about thinking about getting older and, and sort of looking back at life. And at the time I was like, you know, 22 or whatever. And I was like, dude, you're just, you're just, you're not that old yourself, you know? And, but, but, but at the time, I guess I was starting to think about these kinds of things. But when I think about it now, it's like those songs make more sense to me now than they probably did to me at the time. And it's almost like I was imagining my older self when I was writing them. Yeah. Yeah. I I just, it's, it's a remarkable song and it, it suffers a little bit from, uh, um, the fact that it's almost a cliche now. Right. Uh, but brilliant. What's great about this, and, and to Paul's point, Paul McCartney's point, is the idea of yesterday is, yesterday could be literally the day before, or it could be, you know, a long time in the past. So that's what's so great about this. It's just like, you know, I, even thinking about sometimes, sometimes you, you know, you have a day and everything's going great and the next day some terrible thing happens to you. And you can even imagine, well, yesterday everything was great and today everything seems horrible. Or you could think of, you know, at, when I was 18 years old, life was so carefree and now it isn't, you know, so it has these, it can mean either of those things, which, you know, makes it, makes the lyric even seem greater. Yeah. Well, my wife and I were having one of those conversations last night over dinner. I was, I was saying, yeah, you know, I love the nineties. <laughs> right. <laughs> just yeah. thinking back, yesterday, all my trouble seems so far sure, away. Course, yeah. uh, last cut on side one. So you go from yesterday to uh, act naturally. Uh, originally the first cut on side two of the UK help album. Uh, it was also a B-side to the single yesterday in, in North America. Uh, here's a trivia for you, Mo. I, I know you, you, you play a lot of uh, pub quiz uh, music trivia. Uh, the last cover version ever recorded by the Beatles, Act Naturally. What do you think? They're gonna put me in the movies They're gonna make a big start out of me We'll make a film about a man that's sad and lonely And all I gotta do is act naturally um, I, I like it. I mean, I like this song and I like the Buck Owens version of the song. And so I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a really well-written country song. Like in this country music is, you know, country music, the, the cliche of country music is it's four chords and the truth. And so basically country music is all about the lyrics because compositionally it's very, very simple and not much to it uh, compositionally in terms of like the um, chords or the you know melody, but it's all about the lyrics. And so this story, Act Naturally, is just it's just a fantastic story. And 
what's great about this particular cut is it's all Ringo, which is, and, and often songs that Ringo did, it's almost like they just kind of stayed away from it a little bit. I find the Beatles did that a lot. And so Ringo would sort of be on his own. And I often wondered if it was because, I don't know how well we blend with Ringo to like sing along with him too much. Though, though there's another song on this record where they do do that. And, um, um, uh, but I, it, it, but the other thing is, is one of the things I've noticed about the Beatles is when they do a cover, they do have a very faithful version of the song. When you look at all the cover versions, they said they barely ever like reinvent the song. So typically the covers are pretty, like when you listen to Please Mr. Postman, I like the Beatles version better, but it's not wildly different from the original version. And, not, and a lot of their covers are the same. Um, and so this sounds a lot like the, like the Buck Owens track. It's got the same harmony on it. And so Paul, I guess it's Paul who sings the harmony on this, or is it John? It's Paul. Go, it's, yeah, Paul. it's Paul. Gonna yeah. be a big star. And it sounds very loose. It doesn't even sound like it's, it sounds like one take. And I was wondering if, uh, if, um, if it, they just did, the, just knocked it off in the studio, but I think they worked on the actual music track a little bit. Um, so I think it was like they had to do a bunch of takes of the music track and it may just be because it was a country song and that's a little bit, um, I think Ringo and George had a much bigger affinity for country music than probably the other two guys did. And I'm wondering if Paul and, and, and John were like, that's your kind of, you, that's you guys thing. Like you guys go ahead and do that. And, and it, it seems like, you know, George playing the guitar. And I know George was a big Carl Perkins fan and that kind of thing. So that's where I'm really hearing it. I'm really hearing a sort of like an, an, an ode to a style of music that maybe we don't necessarily associate the Beatles with. And that's more like a Ringo George kind of thing. They needed another cut for the album, for the, the UK help album. Uh, and they were originally going to use If You've Got Trouble, which you've probably heard on the anthology or one of the other collections out there. Not their greatest effort. Uh, George Martin didn't think so either. They didn't think so either so that they replaced it and they wanted a song for Ringo Ringo sang if you've got trouble as well uh, and Ringo's recollection is I sang act naturally I found it on a Buck Owens record and I said this is the one I'm going to be doing and they said okay uh, we were listening to all kinds of things and uh, they liked the tune uh, they performed it on their final appearance on the Ed Sullivan show oh wow yeah I, I, I didn't know that I did not know that either I thought wow that's I guess to give Ringo a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of love uh, so that closes side one of yesterday and today before we get to side two of the record, I would like to ask you, dear listener, to please consider making a donation to support keeping the show commercial free. Yes, it is that time in the podcast. I do it right in the middle of the podcast. Uh, any donation that you choose to make is much appreciated, and your donation goes towards offsetting my costs of doing the show, and those costs are, are many, uh, other than my time, which I sort of give. <laughs> uh, web hosting, advertising, some equipment costs. Uh, this is the third series of The Walrus Was Paul, and uh, I hope you are enjoying the episodes. And as I've said before, it, it is a labor of love for me. I really enjoy doing it. I love the chance to talk to uh, some great Canadian music people. Uh, but 
I recognize we live in an era. It's a funny time. I'm a content creator. I uh, have been for my whole career, but we live in an era where people don't expect to or don't want to pay for content. They like content free, which doesn't augur so well for the content creators, be those people, musicians or writers or whatever the case. So if you do enjoy the show, I ask that you please consider a donation to support the show. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. It's not that much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you'd like to help out if you can afford it if you can afford it please do consider it and thanks along those lines big thanks to mark dunn uh, a musician and a writer as a matter of fact uh, who sent along a donation recently thank you very much mark for your donation he also attached a note to his donation he said uh, in part hi paul catching up on your show it's a great program Thanks. Uh, just listen to the Moberg episodes on McCartney while listening to the album, which is kind of a cool way to do it, I would think. Uh, question, could you list, say, the best five, however you might determine best, critical books on the Beatles and solo careers or even best bios? Keep on doing your thing. Good stuff. Signed, Mark. Uh, Mark, I will get an email out to you with those book recommendations. And thanks again for your donation. Uh, Again, if you'd like to make a donation, dear listener, uh, I'll give you a shout out as well or not, uh, whatever you want. Just visit the website romicast.com and thank you. Uh, And if you're enjoying this episode, you might also want to go and check out those Moberg episodes that Mark was referring to. Uh, He's talking about the brilliant 1970 McCartney album. Those episodes uh, were in series two, episodes 13 and 14. That's where you can find them. Definitely worth checking out, uh, especially if you're enjoying our chat with Mo here today. So let's get back to that chat and back to yesterday and today. And it is side two, cut one, originally the second cut of side two of Revolver. And your bird can sing. This is easy in my top 10 favorite Beatles songs. I love this song and I've always loved it. And it's uh, it's such a beautiful song. And what's interesting about this is it's such a power pop song. And from the Beatle that we wouldn't necessarily associate with being the power pop Beatle. And so, well, I mean, I certainly wouldn't associate George, but you think, oh, if it's going to be a super poppy song, it's probably going to be a Paul song. Whereas this is like, I think that, this may be like one of the origins of power pop. This is such a, the vocal harmonies and just the, the, the guitar playing and the guitar minis and stuff like that. It's just such a quintessential power pop song. And it's interesting to listen to the evolution of this song as well from uh, the Revolver reissue. Because it started off as like a kind of a folk rock song with a 12-string guitar. It sounded very much like the birds and the sort of folky country thing that was kind of happening at the time. And it was more of a vocal duet between John and Paul when it first started out. One, two, Seven 
the guitarmonies, we call it that, it's just kind of a joke, they talk, harmony guitars on it, are, um, they're not as big a part of the original versions as they became in the original. And I think, I, I, I'm, I'm just wondering if everyone sort of figured out, this is actually really a good part of the song, we need to make it more of the, of the song. And it is a huge part of the final version of the song. But if you listen to their, their, or the, the, you know, the versions as the song started to grow and become what it was, the guitar harmonies start off as not being that big a deal and just sort of inched more and more and became part of it. And they started to become part of the B section. And, um, and then there was another version uh, of the song where it was more sort of rock steady, where it was just kind of dang, dang, da 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 like that. And that was also a really cool version. And this is one of those songs where listening to the old versions, like that would have been a good version. That would have been a good version because some of them are like, this was all crap until they actually got the real good version. <laughs> but the, all this stuff is really good. And there was a version of it um, where, where in the solo, Paul just played the root note. And it was kind of played like a punk rock bass line in it. And I was like, I wish he'd done that in the real version because it's he's so busy all the time. And if he just went boom, 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 that would have been so great. It just laid down this really low end foundation for the for the solo that I thought was really great. So the harm, and then the the harmonies that they do in the the final version that uh, that on the very last A section when they go tell me that you've heard everything, and they have that sort of descending beautiful three part descending harmony. It's one of the greatest moments in recorded history. It's just so beautiful. You tell me that you've heard every sound there is And your bird can swing But you can't hear me You can't hear me And you only hear that on that last, their final version. And that must've been just the last little innovation they did. And it just, it made the whole song. And I guess that's what it is. It's, I don't know if it's George Martin or if it's them or whatever. It's just like, who decides, okay, this, we can do this and this is going to be the, the, the thing that, that this is so much better than what we've been doing already to this point. I, it's just funny to, uh, to see something evolve like this that, became, that started off one way and it was, it's so wildly different in their final version and so much better in a way. But um, yeah, it, this is just great. Uh, I want to lay this on you. It's from Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head. Uh, McCartney and Harrison with the dual guitar medley. He describes it as such. An arpeggiated chromatic passage and a recurring arabesque in parallel thirds played by Harrison and McCartney. D do you understand that? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> not, not, not that much. Um, some speculation that Lennon wrote the song in response to Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones boasting about his pop star girlfriend, uh, Marianne Faithful Bird is uh, slang for a girl chick in, uh, in English slang. Uh, there's a fun version on the Anthology 2 album as well as that extended edition of Revolver uh, where Lennon and McCartney get the giggles uh, during the recording. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard them trying to get through it and just laughing. It, it's kind of fun. You listen to that particular outtake. It's two guys in their early mid-20s at the pinnacle of the pop world and just having a good old laugh and a great time. You tell me that you've got everything you want And your bird can sing But you don't get me You don't get me you were 
in that ballpark when uh, Love Junk exploded, maybe a touch older. Uh, but uh, looking back, did, did you guys laugh enough and enjoy it? I, I, I think we had fun. Um, I think a lot, I mean, I think we had a lot of fun before we signed our record deal. I think just being in a band and knocking around and driving around in a van and sleeping on the floor, that's a really fun experience for a band. And I think a lot of people have this idea that we got to get all, everything in place and everything's got to be perfect and then we'll put out a record and then we'll just instantly become stars. And But being in a band and sort of like slugging it out and, and, making no money and eating and all that, that it, it was really fun. I never thought, I, and I, I think I had more fun doing that than some of the more sort of like comfortable way of doing it. I wouldn't want to do that now, but as a, as a, as a young person, it was great. And so I think that's, uh, I think I figured out later on, like after the first couple records or that kind of thing, that I was lucky to be able to do this. And I'm going to start to have more fun. And I think I was too um, wrapped up in like, oh, we got to do this, we have to do this. And, and, and the sort of pressures of being in a band, especially when you start to become successful, there's way, way more pressure on you. Um, and, and so I think I, I, I realized, and so I think the, the later years I had way more fun because I just thought, this is great. We get to do this. We get to play music for people and be in the studio. Let's just have fun. And we started to joke around more and have more fun. That, that happened a bit later. And maybe that's the same here because this is mid-period for them too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I in my old life uh, as a as a hockey play-by-play announcer i you know it's a cliche but i wish i could go back and talk to myself in the 90s when i'd you know angst about uh, you know oh i missed that call or that wasn't good or and, and just say hey man just enjoy it more and enjoy it more because it's it's not going to last um i guess that's 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 a universe you guys must just have a blast now when you go out and, and play yeah absolutely so now it's even more fun because we're just there's no pressure at all and we're just happy to see each other happy to get together and that's all the old jokes come back and you know it's yeah it's great what was your uh, what was your biggest sort of rock star moment because that album was you know dear listener if you're not of of our vintage do give a listen to love junk which was it was a big big album especially in canada when it came out so i would imagine that would have been your pinnacle but did did you have a I know you're not the Beatles, but did you have a Beatles moment like where it was just recognized in the street all the time, uh, you know, stadiums going absolutely bananas? Was Did it ever get to that stage? Well, we, we typically wouldn't play stadiums unless we were opening. Um, I mean, I think as soon as uh, the, our... our um independent version of I'm an adult now went on much music. I was suddenly recognized all the time. I'd be recognized daily 10, 15 times, which was the power of video back then. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, it was almost immediate. And then, you know, as things grew, yeah, I mean, especially, you know, I mean, Canada, I, you know, if I was walking around, you know, I'd be walking down the street, even, even in a city like Vancouver, and hey, Mo, hey, Mo, hey, Mo. And so you'd always, that kind of thing. So it became sort of, and even like, you know, be in New York and be at a show and someone would come up to me even then. And that would always blow people's mind. Like I remember going out with the legal affairs uh, um, guy at Chrysalis Records, name a guy, his name is Adam Ritholtz, and him just like, even here, even in New York City, you're getting recognized. And so, so that was, uh, you know, yeah, it, that happens. It's, and you know, that's just a normal thing. And it's fun. It's, it, it's exciting and fun to, because you, you go from like complete obscurity to just being a nobody to this. And it's like, you know, I don't think there's anybody that wouldn't think, hey, this is kind of neat. This is kind of a neat thing. <laughs> 
Uh, let's go to the next track on yesterday and today. I love this one. Uh, one of my favorite George Harrison tracks, originally the fifth track on side two of Revolver, If I Needed Someone. Unlike you, Paul, this is not one of my favorites. Oh, <laughs> I'm no. sorry. I'm sorry to disagree with you. But... If I needed someone to love, you're the one that I'd be thinking of. If I needed someone, if I had some more time to spend, then I guess I'd be This is probably my least favorite track on this particular collection of, of stuff. It, it doesn't, it's just, I find it not particularly interesting, the, the meat of the song. I love the B section more than I love the A section. The, what, the thing I like the most about this song is the guitar hook. That it, it's fantastic. And it has, I think it's being played on a 12 string and it really evokes the time, the era of when this was happening, that sort of when folk rock and the birds and all those bands are kind of it's so it 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 evokes that idea without pandering to it so it's still very much a Beatles song with all the harmonies and stuff but it has that and that's a, it, it's a way to make you feel like the Beatles are always very current and typically the Beatles weren't really copying anybody the Beatles are always people were copying the Beatles that was the typical way things went back then well he had his big the, the big birds style 12 string and that I guess yeah, I assume you're talking about the da 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 I love that. It's great. That's the best part of the song. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, Harrison says uh, in his autobiography, I Me Mine, uh, that uh, the song addresses the avalanche of thoughts that are so hard to write down, to say, or transmit. Um, He does say that notable for the weird, jarring chord at the end of every line that mirrors the disturbed feeling of the song. Harrison said that's an E7th with an F on top played on the piano. I'm really proud of that as I literally invented that chord. John later borrowed it on I Want You, She's So Heavy at the It's Driving Me Mad part. When you think about it. Right. Um, yeah, kind of interesting chord. It is an interesting chord, yeah. Uh, but not a favorite of yours, clearly. Yeah, yeah. It's just, just one of those things that just doesn't strike me at all, man. Uh, dog doesn't like it either. Uh, <laughs> the recording marks, here's a, to, to your point about McCartney's bass playing. This was the first time that McCartney played his bass part after the rhythm track was complete. And, and, and that was the method that he used kind of going on subs- subsequent recordings to put the bass in afterwards. Yeah, I remember reading in Jeff Emmerich's book about him coming in late at night after the sessions were done and he would punch in all his bass parts. And if he, there was a note that didn't ring out pop properly, he would come in and just play, punch in all these notes. And so every single note rang out perfectly. And so he had this whole thing where every single note on his bass part had to just be perfectly played and they would sit for hours and he'd just go through the bass part and, and get everything perfect. Next cut on side two, we can work it out. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? While you see it your way, run the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone. We can work it out. We can work it out. If I'm not mistaken, this is also a Paul composition. And again, a great lyric and a great song. And to me, again, this... gives me the feeling that he is a heavyweight songwriter in the same way that we think of John Lennon. Like this is a, a very interesting idea, story idea. Um, 
and not like wildly sophisticated, I wouldn't say, but just the idea of like, you know, trying to mediate conflict and life's too short to do all this stuff. And it's a pretty universal and relatable idea. And and I also think that the B section is phenomenal uh, in terms of composition and just the way it plays out. That life is very short and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. And then they drop down to halftime and completely different time signature. So it goes from 4-4 four, four to 3-4. So one, two, three, one, two, three, one. So that to me is fantastic. That is incredible songwriting right there. So um, yeah, the, the, the Paul songs on this record, even though there's not as many as there are, John, are all winners. They are absolute winners on this that was george's idea to 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 try it in waltz time right uh with the suspended triplets they're referred to that ended up giving the song a profound sense of friction and fraction friction and fracture is what mccartney says all right well good for you george yeah to me that kind of makes the song yeah that was it and the and the other part i mean this is quintessential lennon and mccartney because it was a mccartney composition but for the middle part the life is very short and that was John Lennon. Oh, so he wrote that part? Yes. Okay, he so brought that part. I'm completely wrong. I'm no, uh, like, not at all. Because that's to me, that is just the killer part of the song. But, but isn't that, you know, it's it's the other great example people cite of, of the Lennon-McCartney sort of dichotomy is, uh, you know, getting better. You know, McCartney's just getting better all the time. And Lennon came up with the, it can't get much worse. Yeah, yeah. You which know? is the classic Beatles story. Yeah. yeah and, and this is another one is, yeah. you know, we can, you know, we can work it out in McCartney. And then he, life is very short and yeah. there's no time. You know, you can right. almost hear the bitterness in his yeah. voice. Yeah, that makes say, a lot of sense. When now that you're telling me that, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Uh, a bit, a bit contentious within the group. Um, it was a double A side single with Day Tripper. Uh, Day Tripper was supposed to be the Beatles' final single of 1965, but then McCartney walks into the studio with "We Can Work It Out," and the group, along with Brian Epstein, still alive at the time, obviously, he says, "You know what? We can work it out is more commercial, so we're going to put that in the A side." Lennon disagreed, as you would, and he said Day Tripper should be the lead song. So the result was the single being marketed as the world's first double A-side, which was released in uh, December 1965 in the UK, same day as, uh, as Rubber Soul. Uh, and then it came out in the U.S. So, uh, And McCartney's recollection in his book, The Lyrics, uh, the fracture was real and we did fall apart before too long. Sadly, Jane and I, Jane Asher, his girlfriend at the time, did break up and that meant breaking up with her mother as well. Margaret Asher was a real mumsy type and since I'd lost my mom, she had filled that role for me. Now I'd lost a mother for a second time. That's, wow. that's how he looks uh, looks back on it in old age. Uh, and the the other thing, uh, they found an old harmonium, and to say hey, let's let's see what that sounds like. Right, it's a beautiful texture in the song. It really sounds nice. Imagine being in a studio like that, like Abbey Road, where you just hey, what does that sound like over right. in the corner? What about that old piano? What, right. what sound? What noise does that make? Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, and I. I that I I really envy the Beatles or anybody who's who was able to just kind of park in the studio and just kind of work on things. Like so much of the time when I'm in the studio is just like we got to get in there and we got to set up and we got to record and make sure we're out of here before we run out of money. You know, basically that's so much of it. And so I, I've always envied people who had the luxury of like, well, let's go in the studio and let's just start working on some stuff and see what happens and we'll try this and we'll try that. And I've done a little bit of that. And what you're talking about, I have tried to do that occasionally. I remember being in a studio and we we're working on a song. I was working on this group called The Ambers. Um, 
and uh, and Renee, who is in our boot group, is it's her and her sisters. And there was a little. It looked like a little toy in the. It's just sitting on a ledge, and it was called a, a stylophone. And it's a, just like a, it's a little thing. It almost looks like an old transistor radio. And it, uh, and and it had a little um, like a, a pen almost. And you, you use the pen to go on this little tiny keyboard. And I heard it, and I was like, "This thing is fantastic." I said, "This is going on the record." And so we found a spot, and it became like this really kind of amazing moment on this record where we we used it to to do a hook. We we actually created a hook on it, and there was a vocal hook on it that was really kind of irritating. When I heard the first demo, and I, and I played it to other people and said that sounds. I played the demo for people and said that sounds horrible. I hate that. And I said, well, listen to what ended up happening. And so what we did is we doubled the, the vocal hook with this stylophone, and it sounded amazing. done that occasionally and I wish I could do that all the time and it is cool when a studio has like something in there and say and you think wow that would be great to have that sometimes I see an amp in a studio it's like we got to figure out a way to let's plug into this amp and see what it sounds like the thing I loved about the Beatles is that they did stuff like that but they weren't They'd use it once and sort of put it away. Like uh, you think of their tasteful use of the then very early uh, Moog synthesizer on Abbey Road, how judiciously that it's used. Or sitar. Sitar shows up in one cut. You know, there'd have been a lot of uh, bands that said, we're going to put sitar on every track. Right. It's our sound. Well, you think George wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would <laughs> yeah. think. Yeah. And even the Mellotron. How many times did the Mellotron happen? I, it, the only, the big time it was was in Strawberry Fields, but and may it be on other songs, but it's not. I never think of the Mellotron as a Beatles instrument, except for the fact that its its use on Strawberry Fields is just so iconic. Yeah, yeah, and, and even you know backwards guitar they did it on a couple tracks, but it, it didn't become a thing. Yeah, uh, well they were the Beatles, so they knew what they were doing. Uh, we go to uh, the next cut and uh, second Ringo vocal on I the know, album. A I second, know. <laughs> what goes on? Because did that ever happen outside of the White Album? Did it ever happen? Uh, like where there is two Ringo songs, because uh, this is, it clearly isn't a real Beatles record. But yeah, I I'm trying to think. Is there two Beatles songs, uh, two Ringo songs on Abbey Road? Maybe no. There's only it's only Octopus's Garden. Right. Uh, the White Album. It's just Don't Pass Me By. Isn't there? There's not another one on that. I'm trying to think. I guess not. Oh no. Good night. Good night. He sings. He sings. It's not. He sings. Good night. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there. There are two on there. But uh, originally appeared in the UK. Rubber Soul as the first cut in side two in the US. What goes on came out to, to the B side of the Nowhere Man single. Uh, trivia note: the only Lennon McCartney Starkey songwriting credit.
it's interesting because both the Ringo songs are country songs. Because I think it would be very fair to say, call this a country song. And and I, so I, I, I often wonder how much George had to do with this as well. Like if he was sort of like a, a big part of like the, the, in terms of arranging the song and performing it. But I guess what's different about this song from Act Naturally is the harmonies. And so the harmonies in the chorus are so infectious. And the harmonies in country music are very infectious. And this is very country harmony. It's not complex at all. It's just like a, you know, a first, a, a third, and a fifth. It's just a regular old country harmony. It sounds like it could be done by any old country band ever. Um, and same thing, the guitar playing is all very super country sounding guitar. Like the guitar solo is a kind of a Merle Travis, Carl Perkins kind of thing to it. So it's a real a country song and it's, it suits Ringo's range perfectly. It just seems to be sitting perfectly in a place where Ringo can sing easily. And I've heard stories about them punching in notes for you know Ringo, trying to get him to sing that last note and with a little help of my friend for like, for like two or three hours or however long. So this song just seems like it's just perfect for him. And, and just the harmonies really make it. I remember being a kid and singing along with this all the time. And just whenever that chorus would come up, I just start singing along because it was an easy song to sing along with because it's a very simple, uncomplex kind of harmony. Great Ringo story uh, for, uh, along those. A little help from my friends. The famous bit at the end, you know, with a little help from my friends. He, he has to really go up the, yeah. the, the story that I read, and I think it's in Jeff Emmerich's book. Uh, I might have my source wrong there, is all the other three Beatles were at the vocal session when Ringo was recording it. And they they knew how hard it was going to be for him to get up there and hold that note to finish the song off. And they were up cheering him on in the, in the studio. And when he did it, they all ran out, applauded and uh, poured drinks. They all toasted it. I've heard this too. And it's like, they're, it's like the literal, the literal with a little help from my friends yeah. to get that done. Yeah. 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 Uh, this song is also very loose to me. Like it sounds very like live off the floor. I'm not sure if it was, I meant to look up the recording details of it, but it, but it gives the track a lot of authenticity. And also Paul, holds back. Everybody holds back. It's really just Ringo singing and those beautiful harmonies and a little guitar solo. So it, it, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a really, really nice moment on the way. John Lennon says that this was an early Lennon right before the Beatles were uh, the Beatles. They were the Quarrymen or something like that and resurrected with a middle eight thrown in, probably with Paul's help to give Ringo Starr a song and also to use the bits up because I never like to waste anything. That was John Lennon's recognition, or recollection of the song. Uh, so this one went back to when the Beatles were the quarrymen and very much cutting their teeth in the Liverpool music scene and later Hamburg. Uh, here's a great quote about your early days, which I want to read here. Being in a band in Edmonton was so hard that it toughened you up, made you a good musician and tempered your expectations. There was no industry out there, almost no gigs and no real future. When the pursuit of happiness broke, even though it was what I had always dreamed of and worked so hard for, it still seemed unreal that it could happen to someone like me. You said that. Can you tease that out a little for me? Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely the case. I mean, I think, and I we found this a lot. We When we moved to Toronto, um, and I may, I don't even know if we've ever talked about this before. When I moved to Toronto, and I, I was sort of amazed because everything there were so many gigs and there were so many opportunities for musicians in Toronto that just were not, that, that was not part of anything. When I came to, there wasn't anywhere to play. I came to Toronto and there was like 30 clubs to play in in Toronto. I was like, I can't believe this. There, you know, there was, 
one or two in in in, uh, in Edmonton, and so and so. I found that when I started saw bands and I saw the people, I was like, I said they're good. There's something good going on here, but they can't really play very well. Like, whereas like you you couldn't even get a show if you couldn't play in Edmonton. Like you had to be. There's a certain level expectation of you being able to play to to do that. And we and we had nothing else to do except practice too. So there was no because I lived in St. Albert, Alberta, which was a little twelve thousand you know uh, person town, and so there's nothing to do. So we would just practice. That's what we do because we had no nothing else to do. And so that's what helped us get good. And then, you know, because it was so hard to get noticed, you had to do something. You had to be really good to even get people to to like you. And I remember, you know, playing shows and and you know sound guys come in and say, wow, you guys can play. And in my favorite story of this was, and I doubt they would remember this, was, was I remember going, we were in, uh, when we were in our punk band, we were on tour with this band called The Pointed Sticks who were like a, you know, big uh, Vancouver band. And, um, and we did like a three or four show run with them. And they, another band on the tour or on the run was the Hi-Fi's, which eventually became Blue Rodeo. And uh, so it was, it was Greg and, um, and Jim. And so um, we, we, you know, and so we did our first show and, and then I think we were opening and then the Hi-Fi's were playing and then it was uh, the Point of Sticks. And, and we came off stage and, and Greg and Jim would go, you guys can play. Like you guys can actually play, and it's like, yeah, I guess so. You know, <laughs> that's a weird thing for you to say because they were in a band, but like you know, in the in the early days of punk, that wasn't like a big thing. It wasn't like you have to be a great musician. And part of it was just like you just go out there and have a lot of attitude. And so it was kind of a, 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 so, but that was just a product of we didn't live in Toronto and we couldn't just as soon as we put a band together to go get a gig at the Cabana Room or Larry's Hideaway or something like that, we had to like, we had to fight tooth and nail to just get anything. You know? it, it, I, I, for a dear listener, if, if you're of a younger vintage, uh, the punk era is something that I'm sure many have, have done full podcasts about, but you tell a great story about the early days in Edmonton. You were in a punk band uh, and uh, I mean, <laughs> there's no nice way to put it. Uh, you spent the evening getting gobbed on when you were up at this. Up at the, can you recount that for me? We, I don't want to. Make, I, I hope it, I don't want you. I don't want you going to go into PTSD here. But uh. no, 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 no. <laughs> no I, the, the, I, this is fine for me. I, I, I again. So I, I got into like punk bands like during the original era of punk, and so we were one of the first punk bands in Edmonton. Where, and so what was great about it was it there was just this. Uh, uh, there was this. Uh, in, like it was like everybody who was in punk was some sort of outcast and then all of a sudden they got together and there was a whole bunch of people like you and it was great just to have that sense of community and it's one of the great things about music is finding people who like the same music as you and have the community that's why they have these beautiful you know electronic dance music festivals and you get all these people together they all like the same thing and they have this wonderful time and that's what it was like in the early days of punk in a very small way like there wasn't that many people in the scene and you kind of got to know everybody but the thing was everyone was kind of a nerd like a lot of people were kind of misfits. They weren't like what you think about when you think of your mental image of a punk rocker as being some some dude with bald head and no shirt on and going and slam dancing and stuff. That wasn't really a thing. And so it turned into that. So as punk evolved and you know got harder and, and it became much more macho and masculine and that kind of thing, um, it, it, it turned into something. And there was this idea that was in Britain, I think very briefly actually, where one of the ways you would show appreciation for the band is that you'd spit on them while they're performing. 
And I don't think anybody liked it. I don't even know how widespread this was. It's, but you know, coming back to a place like Edmonton, this probably seemed like a, a thing. And so some people would do it sometimes and it was a thing. And I, it wasn't really, never became that big a thing. But one of our final shows that we ever did uh, as the Modern Minds was um, we were playing in this uh, venue in the um, university. And the university would be a place where like punk bands could play. And so and a lot of the people who listen to that music were like often university students. And so we were playing, and the stage was very low, uh, low stage. It was only probably like maybe eight inches off the ground. And so I'm playing, and there's, you know, not a barrier or anything like that. It's just like a little room, you know, not a, not a big room or anything. And there's this guy, and he's like, he was a big part of the punk scene. He, he was always at all the shows, and he was like this kind of rich kid, and he always had like a nice leather jacket and all that stuff, but he seemed like a really big, dumb guy. He was like the quintessential big, dumb guy. And so he stood in front of me, and I guess he was thinking, I was wasn't punk enough or something. And he just sat there and he gobbed on me. And like, like closer to you, closer, oh. closer to me than I, than I am to you right now. He stood there and just spit on my face, spit on my guitar over my clothes and stuff like that. And I, I just remember having this like kind of existential moment. Like I was just thinking to myself, cause the thing is like, I'm thinking to myself, I gotta take this because it's punk and that's kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm in this, this is my world and I have to sort of like be okay with this. That's what's going through my mind. And it's like, I have to be okay with this, but I'm not okay with this. I'm actually not okay with this at all. And I started thinking, is this really what I want? Is this what I want my life to be? And, and, and at that time, that's when punk was really changing, becoming kind of hardcore, and most of the audience was male and that kind of thing. And I just remember thinking, you know, I think I want to be in a band where, like, girls come to this show and there's not, someone's not getting beat up and people aren't getting dragged out and going to the hospital and stuff like that. Anyway, I'm thinking all that and I'm just thinking, you know, maybe I need to sort of, because I love the music, but I just, the scene was really starting to get kind of out of control for me and too masculine, macho kind of thing. And then just as I'm thinking that, some guy had been watching this and said, I've had enough of this. And he just walked up to the guy and just clocked him, just punched him right in the face. And he blindsided him too. The kid never saw it coming. Just so from the side, imagine a fist just coming into your peripheral vision and just, and knock the kid out cold on the ground. And I was like, that's it. I'm done with this. I am done with this. I'll be a fan of punk, but I'm going to move into the more sort of vocal pop Inspired music. The, your dreams of being Sid Vicious ended right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ended right the there. Hey, look, and to, for an idea of what he's talking about, folks, it's it's uh, you can find everything on YouTube. But uh, uh, do a search for there's, a, there's an infamous Sex Pistols show that was in a club in London, and Sid Vicious in all his glory, the late Sid Vicious, uh, bare chested, uh, dog collar on with a padlock, and you can see the gob flying through the air from the <laughs> from the dance floor in front of the stage. Uh, all right, uh, on that uh, dubious note, we go to the final track on this album, uh, and I hope you like this one, because I love it. It's a beauty, Day Tripper. Oh, yeah, it's one of the great rock riffs of all time. You can 
tr almost trace metal back to this. Like it's just such a killer riff. Like it's a this is a real rock song for the Beatles. Like it's a more than a, like a pop song or anything. It's a rock song, which is great. And it's. Uh, and, and the other thing that I noticed about this song, and this would be something I'll, obviously I noticed it, it, later on and wouldn't be have any, been anything that occurred to me at the time, was that Paul, the guitar and the, and the bass just follow the riff. And so Paul's playing the riff and is playing it at a pretty high register. So this song has almost no bottom end to it. It's all the basses up playing in the dusty end. And even in the chorus, when he, they're not playing the riff, he's playing really, really high notes through almost the whole chorus. And so the, 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 the part of the song where, where you feel the most sort of weight in the song is in the solo, when all of a sudden the big guitar chord goes, and you hear that, because that's not really present in the rest of the song. And so I, that must be George or something, or maybe John just playing a big open chord there. And all of a sudden the song has a bunch of weight and it sounds way heavier and bigger in that section of the song just before the solo starts to play. And what's great about that, that solo section also, that's a great solo. I hope, I believe it's George playing the solo. I'm not sure. If, uh, um, and then the Beatles start doing that harmony thing that's like a rise. It starts getting higher. And it's almost like harkens back to the early songs. It's almost like, come on, come on, come on. Because it keeps, keeps getting higher and higher and higher and sort of acts like a rise to the, in, in sort of like modern musical terms. And it's just great the way the vocal just keeps going up and up and up. Those three part harmonies, and it's just spectacular. And then they just break it right down to the hook, to the riff again. And it's just, yeah, it's a killer track. It's just an absolutely killer track. Lennon had the initial idea for Day Tripper, and then collaborated with McCartney to complete it. And it was a song, you know, it was a work song. They referred to it as like they needed a track. We got to write this track. Uh, Lennon says written under complete pressure. Uh, Day Tripper, McCartney recalls, was to do with tripping. Uh, Acid was was coming in on the scene and often we go to these songs about the girl who thought she was it uh, but this was just a tongue-in-cheek song about someone who was a day tripper a Sunday painter a Sunday driver someone who was committed only in part to the idea of tripping whereas we saw ourselves as full-time trippers fully committed drivers she was just a day tripper that's McCartney's recollection uh, Ringo with a bit of an homage to the Stax session drummer Al Jackson uh, MG's The Stacks House Band uh, during the chorus of the song playing uh, fours on the bass drum. You know, doom, 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 uh, which is a, a real stacks thing. So, uh, and it was the, the double A side uh, in December of 1965, uh, which came out uh, that the Beatles put out with We Can Work It Out. So, there you go. That is the album. Um, now, just a couple of chart things. I always love to do this just to just for context. Uh, other albums in the US and Canadian charts at the time this came out. Just to give you an idea of where the Strangers in the Night by Frank Sinatra. Uh, it replaced this album at number one. Um, what Now My Love, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. That's what people are listening to. It, 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 it bumped yesterday and today from number one, Herb Albert. Uh, Aftermath by the Rolling Stones. You've probably heard of them. Uh, Lou Rawls Live Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys was out Wonderfulness by Bill Cosby a comedy <laughs> album hey right. little did we know right. <laughs> and uh, soundtracks were big back then Dr. Zhivago the soundtrack was people used to go and they'd buy a soundtrack album not so big anymore so there you go um, funny to think of how eclectic you know the charts were back then compared to the way they are now yeah, yeah, and that there's a we could we could be two old guys and rant about the the current state of music. Um, I miss you know I, I guess showing my age I miss 
guitar, bass, drums, actual rhythms and stuff. And now it's all about, I mean, you're a producer, you know, a lot of it's, it's about samples and beats and rhythms. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that would, the 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 the, pop, the blog that you we'd been talking about earlier. That was the thing is is there's still a lot of that. There still is a lot of that kind of music, and I think that what happens is is the sort of the radio and the charts and stuff have become so narrowly focused that it, it's it's um that so much attention goes to that. So the sort of like whatever commercial pop is and it's often hip hop based or electronic music based and that's that's just the focus. But there's so much more music going on out there that isn't that. And that's what I was trying to say is like, you know, you go on Spotify and you check out all these alternative music bands or metal bands and stuff and they got, you know, hundreds of thousands if not millions of, of streams. And so it's like, they're doing something. There's a lot of people who want to listen to that. And even my students, like, I think, you know, I, I, I teach um music production and everyone thinks, well, your, your students are probably just a bunch of beat makers. And it's like, you know, I, they, most of them can play guitar or they play the trumpet or they play the drums or a lot of them can, like a, there are a lot of, some of them are beat makers and some of them are electronic dance music artists, but a lot of them are just musicians who like music. And I mean, just to, just to illustrate this, I, I walked into class and two of my students are talking and they're talking about uh, um, watching Get Back and they're saying, saying, you know, the thing that irritates me that most is just like how they ignore George. And then George comes out and he puts out, uh, you know, all things must pass. And it's like, it's like, you guys are a bunch of losers. This is 10 times better than anything you guys were doing. And that's, that's their opinion. Their opinion was like, all, all things must pass was better than what any of the other Beatles were doing. Any of their, better than any of their other solo records. So I've got kids that are like 19 years old talking about this. And so, you know, it's, you know, there, it's still happening. There's still music like that guitar based music people still love the beatles people still love iron maiden you know it's it's there it's still there and people still love love junk by uh, pursuit of happiness too how many years now for that it's over 30 we had our 30th anniversary oh. a few years ago yeah so it's an old record <laughs> all right mo uh, so final takeaways final thoughts on uh, our conversation we've been talking about this album for a couple almost a couple of hours now uh what are your your sort of takeaways on the album our th- our conversation. What uh, the floor yeah. is yours? I think when I think I, I wanted to, like I said uh, at the top, I want to do this record because I feel like an emotional connection to it. It's part of my past. I, I, I feel connected to it. And when I think about it more intellectually or historically, it's 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 kind of just a jumble. <laughs> it's a jumble of songs, but it's a bunch of great songs. There's a bunch of really great songs on here. It, I don't find it particularly cohesive as a record, but. These are all. This is a really great collection of songs. It's it, and yeah. So I, I still really like it. And I still think it's a great, great piece. Mo, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for your time, and uh, let's do it again sometime. Great, great to see you, Paul. Mo Berg's website is moberg.ca, M-O-E-B-E-R-G.ca. The Pursuit of Happiness band website is tpoh.net. Both Mo and Ban are on uh, Twitter, Insta, and Facebook. Really enjoy talking. Uh, that was fun. I really enjoy talking music with uh, with Mo Berg. He's 
cool guy and uh, a lot of fun to talk to. It's been a pleasure to have him on the podcast, uh, I guess, uh, three times. The hat trick for Mo. Uh, the website for this podcast is romycast.com, R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, you can find the podcast as well on Facebook by doing a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is Romanuk Paul. And you can also drop me an email if you'd like. The email address is the.romicast. That is the.romicast at gmail.com. On the next episode, my guest will be singer-songwriter from the Americana genre, uh, selling a lot of records in Europe right now and is is gaining popularity in Canada. He's a returning guest, great guy, uh, and with a great new live EP out that he is going to be talking about, Live from Paradise. Jerry Legere will be here to talk about John Lennon's fantastic 1973 album, Mind Games. You know, Imagine is a beautiful record, and I love his vocals on that. But but I do I do find his vocals are a bit like weaker on that album. Like I think he and you can kind of hear him in the studio. He's kind of having trouble singing some of those songs. Where this one, I feel like his vocals are so strong. You know, I just. It was just, he had some good days there. Maybe, you know, a few less cigarettes or a few more. I don't know. That is Jerry Legere, and he'll be my guest on the next episode of the Walrus Was Paul podcast. So look for that. A man does not live by Beatles alone. There is a lot of music that I love listening to just as much as I love listening to the Beatles, and I get asked about that, so I've got this little section in here so far in Series 3 to talk about some of the music I've been listening to. And lately, I have been listening to a lot of music by composer, arranger, and sometimes singer, he's a pianist as well, uh, Bert Bacharach, who passed away on February the 8th, 2010. 23 at the age of 94 a pretty good run and a pretty amazing career as a songwriter Bacharach and his songwriting partner Hal David uh, their songs loom large indeed Uh, I would call Bacharach and David for my money the greatest ever American popular music songwriting duo and there have been many great ones but I think Bacharach and David stand above all. Uh, listen to Dion Warwick's Promises, Promises, or her rendition of Do You Know the Way to San Jose, both Bacharach David tunes. Uh, BJ Thomas, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, again, Bacharach and David. Uh, the Carpenters, Close to You, beautiful song, uh, amazing performance by Karen Carpenter. I could go on and on. There are so many songs. You may not know their Bacharach and David songs, but you will know the song. He just wrote so much. Uh, amazing, amazing work. Uh, a favorite of mine in terms of records is go and uh, check out Burt Bacharach's 1971 solo album called Burt Bacharach. It's a great listen. That is my recommendation this week. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, a donation is always appreciated. Click on the player or go to the website for information on how to do that. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels, also a big help. So thanks in advance. That is it for now. I'm Paul Romanuk. Pleasure as always. Thanks for listening and so long for now.
ever get tired of being Beatles? I play the drums. Then I play a guitar. And I too play a guitar.